Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Taha Lokandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Anna Soffert, founder of ADD Wealth. From a personal finance perspective, Monday's budget was fairly thin in the ground, but some changes that could have a fairly significant effect on your wealth are going to be introduced sooner than expected. Anna, what are these and how do they make a difference? Um, Well, probably the two main changes um, that will impact on everybody is um, the rise in personal allowance um, limit. So that's going to rise to 12,500 from next April. This was due to rise from April 2020. So they brought in a a quicker rise, if you like, uh, from next April. So that's a little bit of money in all our pockets. Um, and then the second is actually the, the surprise change, which is um, the raise in the basic rate, high rate allowance band. And so that's gone up from about 46 to about 50. So that's a real jump. Um, having said that, they have now frozen that till 2020. So there's often a bit of a sting in the tail with a, a lot of the things that are announced in the budget. Mm. With um, that in mind, will um, these changes be beneficial to everyone? Um, They'll be beneficial to a a lot of people, but uh, people with children and um, child benefits, I think there's an interplay within tax credits and child benefits that may not be as obvious, I think. So I think individuals are going to have to look and see how that plays out for them. So no, it's, you know, often things on paper look look great, but when you work it through for yourself, it doesn't often. Uh, for others, on the other hand, if you, you know, if you're between basic and high rate um, and you're looking at pension contributions and stuff, you will end up getting a little bit of tax relief if you're within that sort of, um, if you bridge, if you like, basic mm. and high rates. But if it interplays with child benefits, particularly, I think there are issues there. Yeah. What about people who earn over 100,000? Well, the, again, um, you lose your personal allowance at 100,000. So the fact that it's going up is neither here nor there. In fact, in some ways, it means that you are you are losing more of an income uh, because the, uh, the margin between 100,000, probably about 125, you're effectively paying about 60% mm. because you pay your 40% tax plus you lose your personal allowance. So actually for those people, whereas they're going to pay 20% between 46 and 50, they've lost a little bit more of the personal allowance at the higher end. So again, I think the numbers are not going to be as attractive. Now, if you're one of those people, I mean, what could you, is there anything you can do sort of legally, of course, to mitigate the effects? It depends whether you're you're bridging the basic and the high rate or you're the 100 to 125 and you're losing your personal allowance. Um, pension contributions, if you aren't limited by either annual allowance or lifetime allowance issues, is a good way of clawing your personal allowance back or sheltering your high rate um, within a pension. Um, charitable donations actually are, are pretty good as well. And with Christmas coming up, that may be something you might want to think about. Now, are there any other announcements in the budget that investors and savers should take note of? There are changes around entrepreneurial relief. So um, if you have um, shares in smaller companies, perhaps you worked at uh, previously. So I think that that merits a look at because I think there are significant changes in there. They are changing um, 
Actually, there's not many changes outside of that for on, a, on a personal basis. The ISA allowance is staying the same. There were no changes to pension allowances or tax uh, relief. Um, so mostly around the tax bans were the main announcements on that side. Now, a budget announcement that might be of particular relevance to income investors is the abolition of private finance initiatives. PFI schemes, as they are known for short, have been used to help to finance the building of public infrastructure such as schools and hospitals. Um, And some of the private sector institutions that invest in them include listed infrastructure funds. Taha, how have PFI schemes been beneficial to infrastructure funds and their shareholders? So they... um They've been very useful because these are the kind of constructed projects with their very low risk, um, but also they are government backed, which makes them incredibly low risk because they're you know these are schools, hospitals, etc. Um, as you mentioned, um, but also they um, they have income streams that are inflation linked uh, and very well protected, and this means that the infrastructure trusts that buy them have very attractive dividends at quite you know generally quite a low risk level, which is obviously. You know, the ideal situation, the the only thing we're looking for is investors, I suppose. Okay, now which of the listed infrastructure funds in particular have benefited from investing in PFI schemes? So I think the biggest ones, uh, I suppose, are the closest we get to household names in the infrastructure space. So Hickel Infrastructure, that has about 80% in uh, public-private partnerships, or PPPs as they're better known. Now of that 80%, uh, quite a big chunk will be PFI or PF2, which was uh, a second version of PFI. International Public Partnerships, or INPP, um, that has about 18% in PPPs as well. So um, yeah, quite quite a big exposure. Um, I know listeners may remember uh, John Lang Infrastructure Fund as well. That was a huge PFI um, investor, but obviously got uh, taken over by Dalmore, so that is no longer listed on the market. So will the abolition of PFI schemes be detrimental to Hickel Infrastructure and INPP? There's a there's quite a few things at play here. So there's some things that are really beneficial and some things are negative, and it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this balances out. So... There's an argument to to make here that it could be positive on the basis that because now we have a definitive end of PFI, that the number of PFI projects that are available in the market for kind of Hickel to buy will be limited. And that means that the, that's fine, but it also means that the ones they hold might increase in value. So therefore, you, like shareholders of Hickel and IMPP will benefit because the valuation of the projects that they already invested in will increase. The counter-argument to that is that there hasn't actually been any new PFI projects since 2016. So, you know, Kieran Drake of Winterflood is quite convinced that this has already been priced in, so therefore there probably might not be that much of an uplift. There is another thing that I think we need to think about as well, and that is um, obviously the government is still going to want private investment into uh, infrastructure, so they they will have a new version of of PFI or whatever, and whatever it may be called. They've already started doing this in some ways. This will transfer more risk onto the private sector, so it'll be interesting to see whether that risk is still enough for these infrastructure funds to tolerate and whether they'll still be invested in them or not. They've been diversifying anyway away from this, but it'll be interesting to see whether they buy into this new version of PFI, whatever the government comes out with in the future. Anna, do you think listed infrastructure funds, certainly till now, have been a good option for income investors? And how badly will it be affected by the abolition of PFI schemes? I think probably there are two things to emphasise. Um... I like infrastructure as an investment theme uh, and we were probably quite early on investors. But I think quite a few years ago we started to see the political risk um, and part of it is because there are almost a, a contrived structure. So the low risk has happened because actually 
things were structured in a certain way. If you invest, there is a very direct line between risk and returns. And what this did, in a way, was broke that that link to an extent because you can't have uh, the attractive rates of uh, yields that you have had plus capital uplift over longer term and have low risk. You know, that would be everybody's dream, but it's not a reality in the wide world out there. So there's always a risk and often it's around liquidity or, or longer term returns. So in a way, I'm glad because I think we'll get back to a slightly more straightforward, purer investment market than it has been. Now, in Australia, you've got lots and lots of infrastructure funds, but a lot of it institutional and through the pension funds. So a lot of Australian probably hold infrastructure in some form of the other. And I suspect that where that's where it might translate to us. So I think there will be opportunities in the marketplace to structure things for the retail investors, but in a different way. So for me, I think I, this is a, a good move and perhaps moving forward to more grown-up relationships, perhaps. And a bit of clarity, too, which yes. is always good, yeah. Um, in view of that, I mean, um, obviously, Hickel and IMPP continue. Um, there's no talk of them winding up as of yet. Um, but still, they have this legacy. Um, it's unclear exactly what they'll invest in next. Should investors avoid those infrastructure investment trusts because of this abolition of PFI? I think what you need to do is go back, I suppose, to your core objectives and what you are looking to do and asset allocation. Um, And really, if you're looking for that income yield, and if that's the only reason you have gone for infrastructure fund, then I would question it. And, And I would look and say, well, actually... Often, I think investors look at yields and dividends or um, yields from bonds and infrastructure and they skew a portfolios towards that. But that often comes at an expense of long-term capital. So I would actually go back and have a bit of a balanced approach and say, what is it that I'm looking for overall? Some of that might be yield, some of that might be capital appreciation and what level of risk am I comfortable with? So I wouldn't ignore it at all, but I would look at least if you are an investor in these two particular funds, I would look and see what is it that the um, managers are now going to do? Are they going to have a short-term fund which will close off over the next 20, 30 years? Or what else are they going to go? I mean, there's international infrastructure still there and the big, big public private sector projects throughout the world. So I think as a theme and investment infrastructure isn't going away. On that note, there are lots of other infrastructure funds available to UK private investors that invest in areas other than UK PFI. So do you think it'd be worth allocating to them? I think it's definitely worth evaluating them. Um, And then it comes back to your objectives and risk appetite again to work out whether it actually fits into your portfolio or not. What kind of investor would they be suitable for? Um, as I mentioned, institutional investors have an allocation to infrastructure and private equity. So I think high net worth individuals with bigger portfolios definitely ought to look at an allocation which is uh, under the alternative uh, allocation. I think historically people have looked at it as an income yield. I've always been less of a, a convinced investor on that basis because often investors looking for income are are um, older and less risk averse and there was a false sense in my view that these were low risk hmm. eh? 
um, because that's how they were marketed. They had these government-backed guarantees, which the issue you have with that is the politics and politicians change just as we have seen. So the scene can change very, very rapidly. So I've never been fond of them for low-risk um, uh, investors. So I would say more higher risk, looking for some alternatives, uh, high net worth uh, with bigger allocations so they can afford to take longer term view on things. And a finally, I should ask, are there any particular infrastructure funds that you like to use of clients? No, we haven't used them for a few years now. So we haven't got any anyone on our best buy list right now. OK, thank you, Anna. Some really helpful points. Emerging markets are expected to deliver strong growth over the long term, though with some bumps along the way. And so far this year, it looks like 2018 could turn out to be one of those bumpy periods. Taha, how much have emerging markets fallen this year and what's causing this? Yeah, definitely uh, definitely a bumpy period so far this year. Um, they're down about 11%, which actually makes them, so the MSCI uh, Emerging Markets Index is the worst performing major index. You compare that to global equities, they're up 2%, the US is up 8 Um There's like a handful of reasons, actually, so I'll, I will go through them. The, the main one, and, and I'm sure many of our listeners are aware of this, is that the China-US trade tariffs uh, back and forth, this trade war that's escalating between the two biggest economies in the world. But that's, um, so that's kind of weakening sentiment on Chinese stocks, which is uh, a major component of emerging markets generally. You add to that this, you know, slightly weakening Chinese economic data. It's good to put that into context, though. You know, if Chinese growth is going from 6 to 5.5, it's... It's not calamitous, you know, it's still still a growing economy, so it's worth bearing in mind. But then you, you add things like the, the stronger dollar, which has affected corporate earnings. U.S. Uh, Treasury yields are rising, which also means that emerging markets are seen as less attractive in terms of the risk profile they offer because um, the U.S. yields are offering a, a higher kind of return or yielding income as well. So it's a, there's a kind of risk transfer that we have to account for there. And there's also been a couple of issues, uh, isolated issues, which have spilt over in Argentina and Turkey as well. Okay. Now, China is obviously a large and important economy, but it's not the only emerging market. So might not other emerging economies still do well, even if China's hindered by tariffs? Normally, you would hope so. uh, But the the kind of globalised world we live in. So if you take the Emerging Markets Index, for example, China is 31% of that index, and that's its Hong Kong listed shares. That accounts for 31. You, but that you then take another 30% of the index and the countries that fall into that. Uh, China is their biggest trading partner. So you have 60% of the index now that heavily relies on China. You then have other components, and these are big nations like Brazil, South Africa, and Indonesia, all have China as a major trading partner. Maybe not the biggest, but it's still significant for their economy. Okay, so it's a wider problem than it seems. That said, is it just US trade tariffs on China uh, that are holding back emerging markets? Uh, no. So um, going back to the issues I mentioned, all the uh, all the emerging market nations and the companies that operate in them, they can't avoid the, the dollar and the yield issue. What they also can't avoid is the oil price. So, so far this year, it's risen over 20%. Um, about 80% of emerging market countries are actually oil importers, contrary to popular belief that they are they are kind of commodity exporting nations, they're not. Um, so the oil price is really hampering corporates' abilities to grow, uh, grow their earnings, and also the consumers as well. Rather a lot of headwinds. Is it all doom and gloom? Are there any positive signs in emerging markets at the moment? I mean, yes, yes, there are. So um, investors may and listeners may remember 2017 was a, a superb period for emerging markets. And there was a lot of tailwinds there. And that was kind of very low valuations, decent economic growth, inflation, 
the dollar was was benign, so that wasn't hampering them that much. The the tailwinds are still there, but it's just that the headwinds are winning at the moment. I think is is a, is a great way uh, Gary Greenberg, who I interviewed in this week's magazine, puts it. There's also some good signs, like the the singular country issues I mentioned earlier about Argentina and Turkey, seems to have stabilised. Uh, they seem to be making the right reforms that has a kind of appeased markets, I suppose. So there is you know fewer problems there, I suppose, if we can take that as a positive. Okay. Now, you mentioned you've been chatting to Gary Greenberg, who is an emerging markets fund manager. How is he handling all these headwinds and sort of problems for emerging markets? With, with dismay, I suppose, is the, is the best way to put that. <laughs> but um, he, he, uh, he puts it um, in the best way, I think you can put it, and he says, the only thing I know what to do in these situations is buy good companies. Um, so he's buying them at cheaper prices, but he's... Um, He's, he's kind of changing the, which kind of companies he buys. So he started avoiding problem areas. Ms. Greenberg believes that China is going to stimulate its own economy by loosening banking regulations and forcing its banks to lend to smaller businesses. So he's actually had cut exposure to Chinese banks because, you know, uh, well, if you believe in investing in markets, state intervention into your business model is never really a good thing. He's also reduced some consumer exposure as well. Uh, and that goes back down to the oil thing that I mentioned earlier. Um, Anna, um, do you think emerging markets are in serious trouble or is this year's volatility just a short-term setback? I think I'm, I'm quite fond of emerging markets. So we have a tilt in emerging markets in our portfolios. Um, so I, I'm of the mind really that is short-term markets do go up and down. There are different reasons why they do that. There is a slight different cycle to emerging market than there is to the developed world. And that works well in portfolios as well. If they all went up in the same, at the same time and all came down at the same time, you know, where's the diversification benefit? So what we're not seeing, um, in my view, is emerging market economies massively slowing down. Okay? Now, emerging market make up 13, 12, 13% of the MSCI World Index right now. The GDP is somewhere like 32, 33%, I think. So there is a big gap in there, which to me implies that that listed companies more and more, I think, from emerging markets will come and capture the market. So um, I, I like emerging markets. And it's been painful this year for us. But sometimes you have to hold tight Otherwise, you end up making very short-term based decisions. What are your main reasons for um, having a tilt to emerging markets? Well, the main one basically is that those economies are growing much faster. The West, if you think about uh, sort of natural cycles, uh, corporates, humans, you know, you, you, you're young, you grow, you're mature, and then you start to decline. In some way, you can... I, argue that actually the Western economies have matured, don't quite know there is a technology revolution going on. So we don't quite know where that's going. The consumption revolution, if you like, we're definitely matured. Our consumption can't continue to grow. But in emerging markets, that's a different story. There is a humongous gap in there. Um, you've got lots of young people where we have an aging population in the West. And those young people are hungry and eager to grow and do well. So there is a lot of headwind, I think, in the medium to long term. That's been the issue with China and India. And Africa is finally beginning to move. Uh, and there's technology is enabling these um, economies to actually jump 
over certain stages. Um, they, they haven't had to, for example, um, Kenya has come to mobile banking a lot quicker than we're doing. So they, they, the technology, I think, will help them. Um, and the entrepreneurial the, the sort of uh, spirit, because they don't know anything different. That's You want to get on. You want to make uh, wealth for yourself and your family. The reason we see floods of migration is because there is this desire to do better than what you can do at home. I think we'll, it, it will, there is a building block there, I think, for better growth economic growth and um, and social growth, actually, in those countries. Okay. I mean, that sounds like some tremendous potential. That said, what are the main risks of um, getting exposure to emerging markets? Well, the main risk is pretty much as stated. You know, uh, most of the economies are still dollar-linked until we get an alternative yuan currency or some other uh, currency that moves away from the dollar. There is the Chinese economy is still too reliant on the West consumption um, and they are trying to do something about that. So there are definitely issues there and sensitivities, but I don't think I don't think emerging market growth is going backwards. May slow down somewhat, but they'll find different ways. I mean if you go out to Asia and you look at Asia and you look at parts of UK or Europe or America, it's a whole different ballgame. You know, there's just this um, and it's sense of energy and to-do mentality, and they get up and running quicker. They go down as well, so the safety net isn't there that we used to. But there is definitely a different vibe, I think. I mean, in view of this risk-reward balance, what kind of investors are emerging markets funds suitable for? Well, I think every investor should have some allocation to emerging markets from a diversification point of view, from the fact that if you want to invest globally, and actually UK is not all that a healthy place right now, then you need to think about it. How much you allocate will depend to, in terms of how long you have to invest, as well as your own appetite for, for the risk you can afford. And are there any emerging markets funds you particularly like to use of clients? Um, well, we, we tend to, there are probably two, three companies rather than funds. So we like Vanguard that tracks the emerging market um, overall marketplace really well and efficiently and cheaply. Is that an ETF then you're using? Um, no, it's actually a fund. Okay, Un- the Unicus. tracker fund. Yeah. 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 So we tend to prefer those if we can get it. Um, there is a dimensional fund that focuses on value and small company space, which I like. Um, from the more active manager side, um, First Date, um, I think they renamed now, is doing quite well and I quite like um, how they, they look at things. Um, And you're beginning to get a few sort of sustainable Mm. uh, funds in that space as well, which I think is really interesting. Thank you, Anna. Some really useful suggestions. And see Taha's full interview with Gary Greenberg, manager of Hermes Global Emerging Markets Fund, in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. That brings us to the end of today's show, but you can read more on how the budget affects investors, infrastructure funds and emerging markets in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. 
Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 